Welcome to Social Fish and Sing, a production of Coastal Roots Radio. This is our continuing coverage of the impacts of COVID-19 on North America's coastal fisheries and fishing communities. It was an immense fire. It was huge and it was really hot. For them it's important that the government understand that for many communities, they are part of the, the food security for the island, especially on the communities from the coast. You know, this pandemic made things a whole lot more difficult to, to be a commercial fisherman in South Louisiana. Hello, I'm your co-host, Hannah Harrison. I'm joined by... Emily D'Souza. And I'm Philip Loring. If you're new to Coastal Roots, we're an international collaboration of communities, scholars, activists, and others who are interested in supporting the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world. We focus this podcast on storytelling, and over the last few months, we've heard many stories about change, about how small-scale fishing folks have been adapting to the challenges and opportunities brought by COVID-19. But a few months ago, we started to see life creep back in. That is, the natural disasters, accidents, and other misfortunes of normal life, but that are now taking place in the backdrop of a global pandemic. There's an old saying used by those who spend time on the water. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. In today's episode, we take a look at the way that COVID-19 is compounding the already difficult and unexpected challenges posed to fishing communities by the very nature of their job and the sometimes unforeseeable red mornings of disaster. Let's begin in California, where earlier this summer, catastrophe struck San Francisco's Pier 45. In the early morning of May 23rd, a fire broke out on the pier and consumed several large warehouses used by the regional fishing fleets to store their gear. That fire was devastating. It wiped out probably two-thirds of our collective crab capacity in San Francisco. It's going to be a long time before we recover from that fire. That was Sarah Bates, a commercial fisherman based out of San Francisco. We spoke with her about a month after the fire, and she described to us what had been lost and what that means for the fishing community. Pier 45 in San Francisco has four very large warehouse spaces, two of which are devoted mostly to buyers and processors, and one of which is full of, was full of fishermen storage. We still don't know cause and origin of that fire, but it was an immense fire. It was huge and it was really hot. It was smoldering for seven days and it was hot enough to melt and twist the I-beams that were holding up the roof. So everything kind of caved in on it. And so everything in there is a total loss. That shed housed probably two thirds of the collective capacity of the San Francisco fleet. And I think the biggest impact is going to be on the Dungeness crab fishery, though there was also black cod gear in there and shrimp gear and halibut gear and salmon gear, herring gear, you know, it basically all of the things that we fish for out of San Francisco. You know, each, each fishery has a, has a pretty specific gear type, whether it's a crab block or salmon poles or, or hydraulic pulleys or whatever it is it's pretty fishery specific. And so if you're working in more than one fishery, then half of your capacity is in the storage shed. You know, and we had, we had over 30 people with 
with at least some of their production capacity in that shed. And because crab season had just ended, we're estimating it had over 8,000 crab traps in there. For, for a lot of the people that had gear stored in there, some of them had been in there for 30 or 40 or more years. And so for many of them, it really was a career worth of accumulated capacity and capital and you know business value. And none of it was insured. You just cannot get an insurance policy on a piece of equipment that is designed to be thrown into the ocean and then left there. So what are the next steps for these people who have been, you know, impacted by the last like three months of chaos and now this? Uh, We really don't know yet. We are, we're working with the Port of San Francisco and the City of San Francisco to get some grant money to to buy fishing gear so that so that we can go fishing again in November, um, crab fishing in November. But, you know, I think that there may be a handful of people that just decide, nah, that's, that's, I'm out, you know, this is, I'm, I'm near the end of my career anyway, and I'm not going to start over now. And so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna sell my permit and walk away. I think there's a lot of uncertainty now <laughs> for a lot of reasons. That uncertainty is compounded by the impacts of COVID-19 on the crab fishing season, which was underway when the pandemic took full force. Well, we were in the middle of crab season when the shelter-in-place orders started and the restaurants started closing. Um, Such a high percentage of our product, like 70 to 80 percent of it, goes to the restaurant and hospitality industry. And so as soon as the restaurants were all shut down, I think a lot of the, the buyers and wholesalers were they were completely unprepared to respond to that and so many of it was the middle of crab not the middle it's near the end of crab season so it wasn't the huge volumes that you expect at the beginning but all of a sudden the buyers were just telling we're telling the the boats to just leave just leave the crab in the ocean because we can't sell it the demand has not changed that much it's just that the shape of the demand is completely different. And so so in the middle of that salmon season began, we opened at like a rock bottom price, like half price. Um, And that was mostly because all of the buyers thought that that they would be stuck with fish because they didn't, nobody could imagine how they were going to deal with with no restaurants and no hospitality. Next, let's visit Puerto Rico, where we spoke with Captain Marcos Hanke, a man who wears many hats. Marcos is a charter fishing captain and a former commercial fisherman, but he also works as a research scientist at University of Umacao in Puerto Rico and serves as the chair of the Caribbean Fisheries Management Council. Thanks to Marcos, we were able to connect with the presidents of two of the largest commercial fishing organizations in Puerto Rico, and the news was not good. Puerto Rico, as we all know, has had an extremely difficult decade, with Hurricanes Maria and Irma, an earthquake, island-wide power outages, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. One note for our listeners, the audio quality in some of these interviews is a little less than ideal. The interviews are mostly in Spanish, and so we asked Marcos to help us translate. I'll let our fishermen introduce themselves here so that you can get a sense of their voices. My name is uh, Captain Roberto Silva. 
I'm a president of Fisherman Congress of Puerto Rico, or Congreso de Pescadores de Puerto Rico. Eh, Aunamos eh, pescadores eh, de diferentes partes de la isla. My main uh, fisheries is uh, lobster and red snapper. Buenas noches eh, a todos. My name is Miguel Ortiz Serrano, eh, presidente de la Federación de Pescadores Comerciales de Puerto Rico, Federmar. Miguel Ortiz is the president of Federmar. He is a multi-species fisherman that fish trolling, fish with hand lines, with nets, and different other gears. We are right now online with the two biggest uh, uh, groups that gather or have membership of commercial fishermen in Puerto Rico. Now, I want to start with Roberto, who first talked about the immediate impacts of the pandemic on his fishing community. Uh, for us, it was very hard to handle that because all our customers, they are closed, like big, big restaurants and curious many and maybe the 50 to 60% of our fishermen got uh, over 50 years old and all are, are afraid about the COVID and they stay in, in his own house and that situation devastated the fisheries in Puerto Rico. Many commercial fishermen, they quit, they, they try to find another way to, to live and to, to get to earn some money until they got the opportunity to, to, to start the fishing operation again. Uh, maintenance, the, the ice, the, the fuel, everything was very difficult to, to handling with the COVID-19 in Puerto Rico. And many restaurants, they still close maybe for forever. And we got a, a problem to marketing our uh, lobster, no? In order to put things into perspective, Roberto had to take a step back and talk about the cumulative effects of this pandemic on top of the remaining destructive legacy of Hurricanes Irma and Maria and the abysmal failure of the U.S. government to provide adequate assistance. It's a really bad situation for us. After the hurricane like Maria, for example, I got uh, $20,000 in, in lobster traps. One day after, I don't got nothing. <laughs> and after that, the only help of the, of the governor of Puerto Rico is only for 20 uh, lobster traps. It's ridiculous, but it's the reality here in Puerto Rico. Uh, when you got 150 traps and after hurricane you got only 20 and sometimes no make sense, go uh, sailing two hours and a half and come back two hours and a half more for 20 pounds of lobster. That is uh, the worst uh, situation of the fishery maybe in years. And after the hurricane, uh, we got some earthquake and we got a problem with the electricity. We are without electricity uh, for weeks, another problem. And after that, right now we got a COVID, uh, the pandemic of COVID-19. And it's very difficult to handle 
three three devastated uh, situation uh, is is so hard for us. Miguel also noted how fisheries in Puerto Rico, like in other places we've covered in this podcast, are not recognized for their importance locally. First and main thing for them is important that the government understand that for many communities, they are part of the, the food security and the food supply for the island, especially on the communities from the coast. The other idea is that is that the, the monies or the help and the support that are available for the fishermen uh, because when you have an emergency, you need the money on the emergency, not many days after. Now, in the rest of the United States and in Canada, we've been hearing from people about how federal assistance has been essential to working through the impacts of the pandemic. But fishers in Puerto Rico have not had access to the same kind of support. We received in the island uh, 11.4 million dollars from fishery disaster relief from from NOAA, and they just bring us only 400 thousand dollars for direct uh, help to the fishermen. The other ones, the other 11 million dollars, they they keep in his uh, natural resource uh, office, and they they took all the the money. They took only the eleven million dollars, and they just bring on only four hundred thousand dollars. And if you uh, divide that in in uh, in the fishermen of Puerto Rico, maybe the only we can get three hundred dollars <laughs> per fisherman. Uh, that is the only money we got to relieve uh, after uh, the hurricane. And we got the COVID-19 now, and we don't receive nothing at this moment. And no makes sense. When you always got $2,000, $2,000, or $3,000 in, in lobster and many fishes, and you start going fishing for only, for only $500, it's very difficult to, to, to push your family ahead, no? Our last stop is to an area also well-known for the hardships it has recently faced, the Gulf Coast of Louisiana. There, we caught up with fisherman and local catch network member Lance Nosio. Lance is a longtime commercial fisherman and runs a community-supported fishery selling wild shrimp and finfish. You know, here in South Louisiana, um, a lot of people for several generations have just lived off of the land. And, uh, you know, my father, my grandfather, probably his father, you know, we go back several generations of making a living off of these natural resources. And uh, I've been shrimping full-time since 1997. And, you know, shrimping used to be a very lucrative business where expenses weren't that high and shrimp was considered a premium. And, you know, people made a really good living at it. Shrimp is the most consumed seafood in the U.S. over anything else. And uh, we only produce about 10% of the shrimp that's consumed in the U.S. 90% of it is farm-raised, imported from overseas. But uh, 
you know, when I started shrimping back in 97, we were paying 60 cents a gallon for fuel and getting about four bucks a pound for our big shrimp. And uh, around 2001 or so, things really took a dive, um, you know, with the flood of imports. You know, I mean, we were put in a, in a difficult position where we're competing with uh, all this aquaculture that's a lot of cases unregulated. They use slave labor. They use all kinds of things to get this product into the country. And, you know, we're, we're having to compete with this stuff. And so probably in 2001, uh, I decided if I was going to continue to be a shrimper that I couldn't just do it the way everyone else did, you know, by going out shrimping, carrying it to a processor and, and making a living. So uh, we started harvesting shrimp during the week and selling stuff on the weekends. And, you know, that's kind of how we, we survived for several years. And probably about 2003 or four, we got into farmer's markets and uh, we've been doing them ever since. We do eight farmer's markets a month. Uh, we do online sales. We harvest and land our own products and we process them and we you know, carry them to the consumer or the wholesalers. In addition to competing with farmed imports, Lance and other Louisiana fishermen have been challenged by environmental disasters, such as the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. You know, one thing it did for us, it kind of gave us a stimulus because most commercial fishermen uh, were able to get hired on and work for the spill. And we made money that we could never imagine making. And so that helped, you know, what I did when I was working for the oil spill. I just positioned my business where, uh, you know, I built a, a massive storage freezer and got a forklift and a pallet jack and all these different things to help my business become more sustainable. But, uh, you know, we did, we did face some challenges getting into markets after the oil spill. You know, a lot of that stuff has kind of corrected itself. And I mean, I still have some customers that, that you know, say that they'll never buy dull shrimp again. But it seems like, you know, things could kind of repair themselves a lot quicker here. But like many fishermen that we've talked to, Lance has found a way to turn disaster to his advantage. Probably uh, right after the oil spill, I bought a second boat because the one boat, you know, we couldn't produce enough products. So I bought a second boat and we shrimped with it for several years. But uh, because of labor challenges and the expense of shrimping, uh, we had uh, another thing in mind that uh, these farmers markets, uh, fish is another thing that we were buying with other fishermen and processing and selling. So, you know, I said, instead of buying this stuff, let's jump in and make this a fish boat. So that's what we did. And it's been quite challenging, but rewarding at the same time. You know, I'm really struck after listening to Roberto and Miguel talking about the challenges they've faced having no support at what Lance was capable of doing when he had the support he needed, in this case, the income from working on the oil spill. And that's just the thing. Disasters, as terrible as they are, they often open up an opportunity for innovation if the support that people need is there to catalyze on those opportunities. You know, the fish was the one thing that when the pandemic hit, it kind of like uh, threw me for a loop because it was like, how are we going to handle selling this fish? Because we would offload and sell about 70% of our catch wholesale and then just process 20 or 30% of it to have stuff for our farmers markets. So uh, when this stuff hit, we kind of kept the boat in, tried to regroup ourselves and figure out how we're going to make this viable and sustainable. You know, when the pandemic hit, uh, 
I had to just become more creative. So what I did is uh, I had some contacts, you know, from the past that I wasn't doing business with. And uh, I just decided to reach out and uh, I did some fish on consignment to a few of them. You know, I just had to become more creative and, and, and be innovative. And, you know, and the things I've been doing in the past really helped us adapt because if we were just dealing on a wholesale level, we would have been totally shut down without any avenues to move our products. I mean, I've always been a, a slow food advocate, uh, been a delegate to Terra Madre twice for Louisiana Seafood. And, you know, we've always pushed this model of good, clean, and fair. And I think this pandemic is shedding a light on, on the work we've been doing and trying to do. You know, uh, people are getting it now. You know, they want to know where their food is coming from. Uh, I think this is going to shift uh, the dynamics of the global food system. Uh, people won't just take things for granted. Uh, I think they're going to be more concerned about where their food is being sourced from. But the challenges that Lance faces are far from over. Climate change, Louisiana's eroding coastline, and now the pandemic continue to pose significant challenges. We're losing our coastline to erosion, subsidence, and our coastline is a, a massive estuary where all these different products uh, that we produce, they, they kind of get their life cycle started in these estuaries. And, um, you know, after Katrina, they built all these hurricane protection levees thinking that, you know, they're going to give people a false sense of security that you can continue to live on the coast with these hurricanes and stuff. But all that's done is it's essentially cut our estuaries in half. And just people, they don't understand that, that we're losing our coastline. And, and you know, they're already uh, displacing you know, these coastal communities, they, they had a relocation program uh, behind my house here. You know, they, they had to pick up and move a whole town of commercial fishermen, about 200 people. They had to uh, relocate further inshore because of their the coastal land loss. It, it just exacerbates the problems. You know, this pandemic just made things a whole lot more difficult to, to be a commercial fisherman in South Louisiana. I want to end with some final words from Sarah Bates. While pragmatic, she was optimistic that this pandemic may open some doors for real systemic change. There are a lot of issues with our food production system in this, in this country. And I think a lot of people are more aware of that than they were a couple months ago. You know, there are, there are crops in the field that are being turned in because we don't have labor to harvest them. There are animals that are being slaughtered without coming to market because of the labor issues in the slaughter houses. And I think people are more aware. It would be nice if these tragedies provided a way for us to address some of those systemic issues. You know, so much of our food production in this, in this country relies on, on poor working conditions and underpaid labor. And given the amount of wealth in this country and the amount of natural resources and human resources that we have collectively, there's no reason for us to continue that system. We can, we can do better. Thanks for joining us. 
Social Fishtenstein is a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We will be bringing you the voices and stories of small-scale fishermen and women from around North America for the foreseeable future of the COVID-19 pandemic. These interviews and episodes are being recorded week to week, and we aim to bring you a new one every other Tuesday. To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, including fishermen, visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. If you'd like to share your story with us, and we hope that you will, send an email to stories at coastalroots.org. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and by the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph. We also receive support from the American Anthropological Association and the Local Catch Network. Today we heard from Sarah Bates, Lance Nacio, Marcos Hanke, Roberto Silva, and Miguel Ortiz. You're listening to Canyon Breeze by Montana Skies, available on the Free Music Archive. See you next time.